everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you can saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today, we're going to be talking about a startup that is changing the world. But before we get to that, I want to let you know about an opportunity that we have coming up. On Friday, February 19th through the 21st, we will be having our first ever Apollos Watered Weekend. We will be meeting at Phantom Ranch Bible Camp in Muckwanago, Wisconsin, where we will open the Word of God and talk about how we might thrive in Babylon. Our world is fallen, and over the last few decades, we've seen a shift in how Christianity is being expressed in the world, specifically the West and the United States. How do we live in that? How do we follow Jesus? How do we be faithful in a world that tempts us at every turn? That's what we're going to be talking about. It's going to be a great time. There's a lot of different winter activity and sports, things that you can do. It will be a lot of fun. So I would invite you to join me on Friday, February 19th, 2021 to Sunday, February 21st, 2021, and our theme is called Thriving in Babylon. You can sign up on Phantom Ranch's website, and that is phantomranch.org slash events. And today's show is brought to you by Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, Kathy is the person that you need to call. She is an expert, comes with years of experience and loves people. She's trustworthy and cares about her clients. I know, and I've said this so many times because it's true, I am one of her clients. She's my agent. She met with us, learned what we were looking for, presented us with the best options, and helped us find what was right for us. And she can do the same for you. She's attentive to your needs and style and comes alongside you to help you discover and find what is best for you. Give her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. Now, there are certain startups that really do change the world and how we go about our daily lives. Companies like Ford Motor Company, when Henry Ford created the assembly line, which revolutionized factory work and allowed almost any American to get a car. Then there is the Edison Electric Light Company, created by Thomas Edison, that enabled America to get electricity, which eventually became General Electric, or GE. And then there are companies that are worldwide, such as... Microsoft, Apple, Google, and a host of others. Each one of them has transformed how we live, how we process information, how we work, how we think. They have changed the world in one way or another. But over 2,000 years ago, there was a startup ministry that seemed small at the time, but contained within it a power that would begin to transform people all over the world. It's a startup that has been changing the world since 0 AD, and that startup is the Church of Jesus Christ. How has it changed your life? And why had theirs back then been changed? What was it based on? And what significance did it have in their lives? And what significance should it have in our lives today? And it should have a great significance. Oftentimes, I hear people say, well, I love Jesus, but not his church. And that's like saying, I like you, but I don't want your wife coming over. You can come over, but not her. No, we're a package deal. If you're going to have Jesus, then Jesus would say... 
my church comes as well. We need both because the church is Jesus's bride. The church is the startup that has been changing the world, and it should have a significance in our lives. And if COVID and quarantining has taught us anything, it's that we do really need one another. We need the church. We need the people of God. So I want to go back today and examine a passage about the very first church and how it really came to be. So let's jump right into that, shall we? Today we're in Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, and I want to read this to you. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I chose this because Acts is a fascinating book that really lays out for us who we are to be in that we are made in the image of God and we are followers of Jesus. And we see how God organized his church, his people of God. Now, if you know anything about the book of Acts, you know that it's volume two in a two-part series. Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, wrote the book of Luke first and then Acts. And here we have him referring to the exact same character in his introduction that he wrote the book of Luke for. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, we don't know about this guy, Theophilus, except that he is referred to in the book of Luke and Acts. But from those accounts, we can assume a few things about him. He was a believer in Jesus. Perhaps he was a wealthy Gentile, one who could finance Luke's travel to research Jesus' background. His name means friend of God. At the beginning of Luke, he is referred to as most excellent Theophilus, which was a title that was only used for Roman officials. Quite possibly then, this guy Theophilus was a Roman official who became a follower of Jesus and who wished to know more about him, so he sent him and financed a discovery trip for the physician historian Luke. He then connects this second book to the first one. He says in the passage, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You see, Luke connects his first volume to this second volume, and we can see that this book is an extension of Luke's first message. The story wasn't over with Jesus' death on the cross, or even his resurrection from the dead. There was more to it, as we're going to see here in just a moment. And I want us to look at verse 1 again. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. There are two things in this that this book is based on. First of all, it has to do with all that Jesus began to do. In other words, his miracles. Christianity, at its root, is miraculous, and the message he conveyed was only a good philosophical one unless the miracles validated everything that he, he did. 
to go around teaching. Everybody thought he was a good teacher, but the miracles validated everything else. And this book seeks to root our understanding of who Jesus is, starting off with his miracles. You see, Jesus was unlike any other person who has ever lived on the planet. He healed the deaf, the blind, the lame, and the demonized. He even raised the dead. He demonstrated power over nature, turned water into wine, withered a fig tree, multiplied the fish and bread, walked on water, and then calmed a storm. And to top it off, he died and rose from the dead. Now, all of this validates his message. Notice that Luke wrote his first book addressing everything that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus said some pretty amazing things from an outward perspective. I mean, actually, it's really crazy stuff when you get into it because he claimed to be able to forgive sin. He claimed to be able to forgive your sin. I mean, if I said, oh, I forgive your sin, you'd think I was nuts because I don't have that power to be able to do that. We can say anything we want, but none of that means it's true. Although with Jesus, it was true. He, he claimed to, to be able to forgive sin. He actually claimed to see Satan's fall from heaven. He claimed to know or see Abraham. He claimed to know what God intended when he spoke about divorce. Which what, he, he also claimed to know which was the greatest commandment. And he also claimed to know how people would fare if they were to build their lives upon his teaching. So by simply looking at his words, we have to make a choice. And C.S. Lewis talked about this years ago, that he's either crazy because only crazy people claim to be able to forgive sins or rise from the dead. I mean, only a crazy person could claim to see people when they were far away from him, or he's a big con man. That he would be the biggest con man then to ever have lived. There are plenty of con men out there who are trying to gain a following, who claim to be a big deal, but they only want your money or to get you to do what they want. They don't care about you. They only care about what you can give them. Or maybe he's a children's fairy tale, a, ta a story of a good man who loves people. And perhaps this story of Jesus has grown over time, that he's a legend, you know, like athletes who were very good years ago, but whose legend grew over time. And then there's another option. And really, this is the only one that can be considered if the other stuff can be verified. That he's the Christ, the Son of God. He is who he said he was. You know, the religious leaders of the day mocked him and they thought he was crazy. They hated his popularity and accused him of blasphemy. And for anybody else to say what Jesus said would be blasphemy, but not for him. There is only one way that they that this wouldn't be considered blasphemy, and that's if they what he said was true. You see, without the resurrection, Jesus is just a good teacher, maybe even a miracle worker. But with the resurrection of Jesus, everything else he said became more potent. Why did Jesus come? I mean, we hear about him all the time. We see signs at football and basketball games, John 3.16. I mean, we know it's in our culture. We hear it politicized all the time. We hear the name of Jesus. But why did he come? Let's get back to that for a minute. Why do you think that he came? To drive the world crazy? To get a following? I mean, what did he do? Why did he come? For us to understand this startup called the church, we have to know why he did come. He gave his apostles a series of commands, showed them the marks of his suffering, and talked to them about the kingdom of God. And we've talked about that in previous episodes. 
And that started with his arrival on earth. He came to earth on a mission. What was his mission? Well, it was multifaceted. He came to inaugurate God's kingdom, to seek and to save the lost, to destroy the works of the devil, to ransom himself from many, to display God's glory, to absorb God's wrath, to please his heavenly father, to learn obedience and be perfected, to show God's love and grace for sinners, to cancel the legal demands of the law against us, to take away our condemnation, to provide the basis for our justification, to bring us to faith, to abolish circumcision, to fulfill the law, to make us holy, to make us blameless and perfect, to give us a clear conscience. Who doesn't need a clear conscience? to obtain for us all things that are good for us, to give us eternal life, to, to deliver us from this present evil age, to reconcile us to God, to give us access to God's presence, to bring the, whole, the Old Testament priesthood to an end, to become our eternal high priest, to free us from our slavery to sin, to enable us to live for Christ and not for ourselves, to make the cross the ground for our boasting, to give marriage its deepest meaning, to free us from the futility of our ancestry, to create a people zealous for good works, to free us from our bondage and fear of death, to secure our eternal destiny with him in heaven, and to unleash, unleash his power in us, to destroy racism, to disarm the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realms, to secure our own resurrection from the dead, to ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation, to gather his sheep from around the world, to rescue us from the final judgment, to gain his joy in ours forever, and to crown us with glory and honor, and to show that the worst evil can be meant by God for our good. He was coming to set up a kingdom, one that would be slow, that would just grow slowly, be under the surface, but one that would grow until it encapsulates every people group on the face of the earth. Isn't that awesome? Considering all the things that, the reasons that Jesus came to die, I love that synopsis. John Piper really created that and showed that. I mean, God created it, but he laid that out and it's really dynamic and awesome to hear. The Bible talks about all these things, but the only reason that they mean anything is that they are rooted in the evidence of his resurrection. I can't reiterate or place enough emphasis on how important the resurrection of Jesus is from the dead. You know, we spend a lot of time in the West talking about Christmas, and the incarnation is awesome. But when we go back in church history, we see that the early church didn't celebrate Jesus's birthday. Because that's what Caesars did. They celebrated their birthdays and they made everybody celebrate it. Instead, we see the early church placing a huge emphasis on his resurrection from the dead. And as I said before, without the resurrection, his words are only the words of a guru. That's it. That's who Jesus is. He's a guru and he's got people around him following him, hanging on his every word. But with the resurrection... Everything that he said is validated. It's got an exclamation point behind it. I mean, Luke tells us that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, we can't underemphasize that because in our world today of fake news where people spin it left and right, here you've got <laughs> witnesses that are testifying about it and willing to die for that testimony. 
That's incredible. That's absolutely unbelievable. And that should cause us to wake up because today we don't care about evidence because we go fake news. We think that everything is in the eye of the beholder. That's your perspective. That's not my perspective. And we have been spin doctored to death. And instead we have to go back to say, is there something that is true? Just like Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? I mean, Jesus is truth. That's what it ultimately goes back to. Because when he comes again, all that fake news, all of the different things are just going to go away. Because you're going to see him for who he is, and he is awesome. Now, going back, though, to this idea of proofs, the first proof that we can see, or we, we see it in the scriptures, is the empty tomb of Jesus. And consider that the resurrection was being preached in the same city he died and was buried in. That's something that you can't just underestimate or miss. They didn't go to someplace far away to preach, but the, the heart of where everything occurred. They couldn't have done that if Jesus were still in the tomb. And if his body was being hidden, someone would have turned them in. The danger was too great. Not to mention that the Jews tried to concoct a story at how his body was stolen, which meant that they knew the tomb was empty and admitted it. The record we have about the empty tomb in the book of Mark was based upon a source that originated seven years after the event it talks about. It was too soon to become legendary, which also supports its accuracy. Add to that the simple description of it with the details of the people involved further supports the accuracy of the story because the people would have still been around when the earliest resurrection counts accounts would have been circulating. And because it was simple, unlike other spurious documents from the time that were fantastic in their descriptions, for example, in the Gospel of Peter, which is a forgery, there is a talking cross that talks about Jesus. And the fact that the tomb was never venerated as a shrine is startling. In almost every culture, shrines were set up at the place of a holy man's bones. Or in America, it's about a loved one. You can just drive down the street and you can see where someone died in a car accident because someone sets up a little memorial with flowers or with a cross or something else that's there. And here there are no shrines set up. I mean, there were 50 such shrines estimated in Jerusalem during Jesus' day. Since there was no shrine for Jesus, though, that suggests his bones were not there. And all of these together are pretty convincing. Now, why does this matter to us? Because if Jesus did resurrect from the dead, and I want to get just beyond the story, then it impacts us. It is a tsunami for our souls. If you throw that into the ocean of the world then that reverberates to how we live our lives, how we understand what the world is, how it's going to be, and what's going to happen at the end of time, and what's going to happen to us. A second evidence of his resurrection, we got the first one, which is the empty tomb. Let's get to the second one. That consists of the eyewitnesses. You know, there are multiple eyewitnesses that saw him alive for over a period of 40 days. You've got Mary Magdalene, according to John 20, 10 through 18. The women accompanying her, that's in Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Then you have the 11 disciples, including Thomas, who was invited to plunge his finger into Jesus' side in, in John 21. And that would have freaked me out. Freaked me out if I had to put my finger in, because that's what he that's what Jesus says to him. Here, here, Thomas, put your finger here in my side. And the idea is, is plunging his finger in. 
When I was a kid, we had this opportunity to visit this farm at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And it was a, a study farm where they were studying different animals. And they actually had a cow that had a hole in its side. And they had a plastic, like almost like plug that you could pull open and you could stick your hand in the side of a cow's stomach. And I remember as a kid, it was phenomenal. Now, this is something that Jesus is saying to Thomas, except this isn't an experiment. And this is, this is plunge your finger here and prove it. I want to show you it's me. And then we have the eyewitnesses, the two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 13 through 35. And then over 500 disciples at one time, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Then to James, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And finally, to one who, has his, who calls himself abnormally born, and that is Paul. And that's in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 9, in a way that we can't really understand, but we do know that he appeared to him. So we can see then that the evidence of the resurrection is seen by the empty tomb and in the eyewitnesses, but here's another one. It's in the enemy's response. Whenever we're talking about history, we have to look at who wrote the event. We all get that, right? Uh, matter of fact, I'm a big fan of this website called allsides.com. And in it, it actually has the perspective of the writer who wrote the article. I mean, really, it's an aggregate uh, site where you have uh, articles from CNN, The Guardian, HuffPost, I mean, New York Times, and then it will tell you, it gets you gives you this little spectrum underneath it. And then there's an LLCRR, which means like far left, left, center, right, and then far right. And then many of those who read it, read this article, then will rate it, and then they will post that on the site, which lets you know the biases of the author who is writing it, because we all have a certain kind of biases. But here we have something that's pretty phenomenal, because it's often the winners in history who write about it. Their account wins the day. But here's where we have something very interesting. From an outward perspective, Jesus lost and Rome and the Jews won. If we're just looking at that, it's Jesus versus Rome. Rome wins. Jesus loses. Jesus dies. Game over, right? No. That's where the resurrection comes in. When we read about Jesus's body being missing from the tomb and the Jews declaring it had been stolen, it strengthens the arguments for Jesus's resurrection. Why? Because of the Nazareth inscription that ordered capital punishment for anyone who stole a body from a tomb. That's important because it shows that the ludicrous notion of Jesus' followers stealing it. I mean, why would they have done that and then say that he was alive when they knew he was dead and his body was with him? Why would they do that? Especially if they knew they were going to be caught with that body. And you better believe that the Romans were looking all over trying to find it. And, and, and I mean, if they knew if they got caught, they'd be killed. And the fact that the Jews had come up with an alternative doesn't weaken the argument for the res resurrection, and in fact, it strengthens it. So here's another proof. Then there are the embarrassing details. Now, it sounds strange to be talking about embarrassing details in Scripture, but there are some embarrassing details that Luke lays out for us that actually prove the validity of the resurrection. Here's what I mean. Historically speaking, it has to do with the first eyewitnesses who were women. All of the gospel accounts record that women were the first to see Jesus resurrected from the dead. Now, why does that matter to us? That seems like no big deal. 
But in Greco-Roman courts, women's testimony were not considered admissible. And in Jewish society, it took the testimony of two women to equal that of one man. How crazy is that? This is important because if you were trying to invent a story, right? Okay, let's say we're going to invent a story right now. You find every way to validate that message, not bring criticism to it. In fact, you would try to find historical people that would support it. But here they're saying, no, 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 no. This was a real thing that happened. And these women were the first eyewitnesses of Jesus's resurrection from the dead. And if you were trying to create a false account, that's not how you would write the story. You would write someone who everybody respected. But here we see that it's really an embarrassing detail historically, but it really proves, again, the validity. See here, the testimony of the women is included because it's true. And let's add to that, Joseph of Arimathea, who was part of the Sanhedrin, and that's the body who decided to execute Jesus, like this, this court of like rulers, if you will, overseers, like a, a, almost like a board of directors or really a government council, but it's, it's religious and national in, nat- nat- in nature. And they, they had to give Jesus a proper burial. And the fact that the Gospels recorded that all of Jesus' followers were fearful and deserted him again are not what you would want recorded if you were trying to fabricate something. These embarrassing details serve to validate the resurrection. And this happens a bit later, but we have the early church practices. So this is a little bit later, another, another proof, but a little bit later on. I mean, how do we substantiate the resurrection? Simple. The practices of baptism and communion were both rooted in his death and resurrection, as well as the shift from the observing of the Sabbath on Saturday for worship to being on Sunday considered the first day of the week. And then there are the external sources or sources outside the scriptures themselves. Let's say that you don't believe the Bible, okay? Well, then let's look at the secular historians and see what they say. Because there are several ancient unbelieving historians who talk about the res- Jesus' resurrection from the dead, such as the Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historian Tacitus, and Suetonius. And last of all, here's the last proof here, is the evil that the disciples went through. The disciples had no tangible, tangible benefit whatsoever to stealing his body. Remember, they believed that Jesus was the coming military hero who would destroy the Roman occupiers. The resurrection wasn't even on their agenda. But one need only look at ensuing change in the disciples who had been so afraid that they had fled, but now were so transformed that they were willing to testify until their own death that Jesus had risen from the dead. I mean, they were willing to die to testify that Jesus' resurrection. They were constantly being threatened by Jews and Romans alike. What benefit was there for them? Money? I mean, there was no best life now people back then. These guys weren't buying mansions. They were staying in their communities. They didn't, they didn't have a lot. Greed? Power? I mean, they're being threatened, being talked about, being kicked out of the community. I'm sure they're getting pressure from family members, and they're getting pressure from the leaders within society. I mean, there's a lot of social pressure going on, and yet they remained resilient. Why? Because Jesus had truly risen from the dead. And what does this mean? Why do I bring this up? Because the resurrection is real. And what does that resurrection mean to us? 
Well, we have to ask ourselves the first question. Do we really believe it? You know, it doesn't matter if you just believe in your head. It has to be received in your heart. The truth of the resurrection needs to penetrate your soul. It doesn't mean living a good life or going to church, no. It's all-consuming, all-transforming, taking over all of who you are and transforming you into who God wants you to be. And then knowing that Jesus has risen from the dead, that means that we need to explore his last words to his disciple because they really do mean something. If we go back to our text, we read this. He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He gave them commands, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke a great deal about the kingdom of God, and we've talked about that. The kingdom of God was inaugurated or began to be realized in the hearts of men and women as the Holy Spirit broke through and confirmed the message of Christ and will be fully realized when Jesus comes again to deal with evil. Until then, we are to be agents of his kingdom, performers in it, enacting his commands, going forth to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey the commands of Christ. And that means how to love, how to forgive, how to sacrifice, how to serve, how to deal with difficult subjects such as racism, how to keep ourselves unstained by the world, how to treat the most vulnerable, how to help the poor and the weak, how we are to use our money and how we are to do our jobs, how we are to parent and raise our children. These are all responsibilities of those who are Christ followers and who embody within themselves God's kingdom as they seek to die to themselves so that Christ might be seen within and through them. Jesus gave his disciples commands and instructions about his kingdom because God has called us to engage in his divine startup. God, God asks us to be a part of this church. That's why there are so many Christians right now going crazy because they haven't been able to meet as a fellowship. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the body, to be with people, to be with those who love Jesus, to worship Jesus, to hear the word of God proclaimed, to observe the ordinances together, to be there, to love one another, to forgive one another, to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to be the church. And he, God in, and calls us to engage, to participate in this divine startup. Because we can't do his mission by ourselves. It's a task that's impossible for us. And that's why Jesus, by the way, told the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit. You see, God has given us a promise Jesus spoke about a promised helper who would come to help us, one that would have to help them in their time of need, as Luke had written about in his previous volume when he recorded Jesus' words in Luke 12, 8 through 12. Allow me to read this for us. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. 
And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will give you in that very hour what you ought to say. What then was this Holy Spirit? He would be the Spirit of truth who would bring to remembrance the sayings and truths of Jesus to bear witness about Jesus to our hearts, our minds, our souls, and he would convict the world of sin. We read about him in John 14, 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This helper is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth that the world cannot receive because they don't know Jesus. And I'm not talking about knowing about Jesus, but I'm talking about knowing him. The Holy Spirit is not an it, but a him. Notice how Jesus refers to him as him. He dwelled with the apostles then, but he would be coming to live in them. And what would he do? We can see that in John 14, 25 through 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He will bring to remembrance the teachings of Jesus. Where does this spirit come from? Well, we read this in John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The spirit of God bears testimony to the words of Jesus, but that is not all. Look at John 16, 4 through 11. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. This is Jesus talking. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment about who Jesus is and give them a dreadful feeling that the world is coming to an end and that their sin will be judged. The Spirit would come upon them. That is the Spirit that Jesus was testifying about. Jesus commanded the disciples to wait for his, this promise to be fulfilled. In fact, the book that we've look, we started looking at today, Acts, is often called the Acts of the Apostles, and some may actually say a better title is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit at work in the life of his people, the church. These disciples were told to stay in Jerusalem, ground zero, by the way, for persecution and a really hard thing to do because it would be really easy to leave. I mean, what advantage did they, did they have of staying? They were, they were enemy number one right now. They were all being rounded up. I mean, people were identifying who they were and trying to find out who they were, who their families were. I mean, there is a massive inquiry going on right now. 
And we see here that they are called to stay and wait on God's promises to be fulfilled. And that had to have been so difficult. In fact, waiting is always hard for us. It's never easy to wait on God, especially when the circumstances around us are not going very well. But here, they had to do that and exercise patience, and so too must we. We must exercise patience. Waiting on God is never easy. Promises are given, and we agree to wait. But circumstances shift. That causes us anxiety. We hadn't considered the situation and then rationalized that God must not know or care about us and what we're going through. The disciples waited because they had seen Jesus. Now, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for right now? What are you looking to God to show up in? What promises has he laid before you? Know that he's there and he will bring his will to pass. Jesus gave them a mission and they had to rely on God's power to do that mission. John baptized with water to show that they were turning from sin to God and that they had passed from judgment to life. But here they were to be baptized with the Holy Spirit because they needed God's power to accomplish God's mission to reach the world and expand the kingdom of God in the hearts and minds of men and women. It has been said that if you can accomplish God's mission without God's spirit, then it is not God's mission you are accomplishing. There are things that we can, we, we can do in our flesh and in our own strength, but not here. Here we find that our strength is dried up rather quickly. It can only be God's power that can help us stand strong, resist temptation, and tell others about who Jesus is. We have to be divinely endowed with a power that takes us beyond ourselves, who multiplies our words and transforms our actions so that it can have a lasting impact on others. And we can't work that up. All we have to do is surrender and walk with Jesus, abide in him and have his words abide in us. And then be that's, that's how we're filled with the spirit is we take in the things of God, we die or mortify our flesh, and then walk in step with the things of the spirit. And then we see how God begins to work through us. When I was in India several years ago, I got to hear Jill Briscoe speak. Jill is an accomplished writer. Her husband uh, was a very well-known pastor in Wisconsin. Uh, they are both British, and Jill has done a lot of ministry around the world. At the time, she was 80 years old. She got up and started speaking, and then the electricity went out in this auditorium where there were about 1,600 pastors and leaders present. She kept speaking, but the 1,600 people just couldn't hear her. And people started to mumble to one another. They started to talk, and, and she couldn't possibly talk over them. But when the power came back on, she again was being amplified, and this frail woman was broadcast everyone there. You know, the same is true for us. When we minister in the flesh, we are ineffective, frail. But when we are ministering in God's spirit, our influence is multiplied and amplified. God invites us to participate in his mission to reach the world. Are we willing to accept the invitation? Are you? While we need the Spirit of God, it, and, and we do, we need to learn how to walk with God, to take in the things of the Spirit, to minister before him and to participate is not as hard as we might think it, it is. It involves loving people. It invites, involves inviting them into our home, building relationships, sharing the story of Jesus, and loving them for who they are. 
Jesus' work on the cross secured our salvation, which is why he said, it is finished. But the task to reach the world, that is unfinished. He invites us to participate in this great startup. And, And that will be the only one that really will survive. Are you willing to accept that invitation? Will you help finish the task to expand his kingdom in the hearts and minds of men and women all over the world? That means that we are to embrace Christ, accept the task, and be ready to make his name known all over the world, even if it means giving our lives to do it. And speaking of startups, I wanted to take the opportunity to let you know of a startup that God has enabled us to create. This podcast is just the beginning for us. We have created a 501c3 by the same name. Our goal is to resource this global village that we live in so that we might water your faith and then you go water your world. That's what we want to do. We want to water your faith so that you can water your world, wherever that is. And that means watering God's global village. And I say global village because this world is very, very big, but it's also very, very small. And that we need one another and that and that the, 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 the normal walls of hostility have been broken down. And now we are able to communicate with people all over the world that are different than us. Right now, my voice is being heard someplace that I never would be able to go. And I know that we have people who listen all over the world to this podcast, and we praise God for that, and we want to do that more and more. And we want to help equip you so that you can saturate your world with the good news of who Jesus Christ is. You're, you're, you're the one who is out there with your friends, your family, with your coworkers and classmates. We want to water your faith so that you can water your world. And that's why we want to create materials to help resource the global church. We are looking right now for authors, leaders, academics, and everyday believers to help us create content to help water the world for Jesus. If this is something that interests you, then we want to hear from you. Contact us at info at apolloswater.org, and we can send you more information. God's favor has been upon us, and we are so excited about this ministry, and we invite you to participate with us. If you would like to help support this ministry, then I would invite you to go to our website at apolloswatered.org. And at the top right of the page is a support us button where you can give at different levels. I want to encourage you to pray for us as well, because while we, we do need people to give and donate and support us and help us in this endeavor, we need you to pray for us because this is a spiritual endeavor. And help us so that we can help you saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And also go online, go to apolloswater.org, check us out, read about what we're about, and then feel free to ask us any questions. And that's it for today, everybody. If this has helped you so that you can saturate your world, then hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, interact with us on our social media pages, and then share this episode with other people. Because we want you to water your faith so that you can water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.